Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Philippa Natal in Belgium. I'm Alex Kruger in London. It's Thursday, the 28th of October, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, the UN Climate Summit begins. It's going to be very, very tough, this summit. And I'm very worried because it, it might go it might go wrong. And we might not get the agreements that we need. And it's, it's touch and go. So what is COP26? And why should we care? And? We're in the 11th hour. Let's protect ourselves and save the lives of those close to us. We'll be looking at the relationship between vaccine skepticism and authoritarianism in Southeastern Europe in light of the surging COVID cases there. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Philippa, Alex, thank you for being with me on our first day of our new future, our twice weekly future, and the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end ahead of COP26. So Philippa, at the at the top of the program there, we heard Boris Johnson, what was that? Was he lowering expectations? It feels like we're going into this major climate conference sort of bracing for failure. But you're our environment editor, so you would you would know better than I. Thanks, Emily. Yep. I think there's a lot of uh, expectation management which is uh, happening at the moment. And as I think I said on a a previous World Review podcast uh, the other week, COP26 is the International Climate Summit, which is happening in Glasgow, Scotland, starting this Sunday. It should have taken place last year, but because of COVID, it's been delayed by a year. And COPs, although we don't hear about them too often, actually have happened every year since uh, for the last 26 years. The COP uh, in Paris six years ago, there was a, a clear aim to, to sort of rally world leaders around keeping global heating below 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now that aim, which is extremely ambitious, needs to be implemented. And 
getting world leaders to rally around that, to reaffirm their commitment with pledges, which will show how they will achieve that commitment, is extremely difficult. And it's it's a set of difficult negotiations. And negotiations at the moment are also made more difficult by the fact that we've had COVID and world economies have been stalled and are now starting up again. And also the current energy crisis, energy crunch, call it what you will, which is also adding extra challenges to debates, discussions around um, climate action. You have a piece out this week on on basically the question of who pays for this. And I guess one thing that I've been disappointed by heading into next week, at least here in the United States, is the extent to which that's still the focus of discussion. Every piece of science that comes out tells us how catastrophic it is going to be if we don't work together to take major, major action toward combating the climate crisis. And yet here in Washington, you have clean energy provisions being stripped out of the reconciliation bill. You have senators basically saying, well, what would this do for my state's oil and gas? And perhaps also thinking, what will this do for my lobbying contacts with people who work in the oil and gas industry? Uh, you know, the, the U.S., which is the, what, the number one historic uh, emitter, even if we did all of the things that we said we were going to do, it still wouldn't be enough. And we're not... Like, we're not even doing that. And then you look at the numbers, right? Like, you know, what, $2.5 billion requested in for, for climate aid in Biden's budget this year compared to $11.4 billion even pledged at the UN in September to get to annually by 2024. Like, compare that to what we spend on national security, even though the Pentagon is telling us, hey, this is a major national security threat. I don't mean to be like, tell me why we can't break out of this short-sighted self-interested framework. But like, you know, it's 2021 and we're still we're still thinking of this as a thing that we can get out of paying for. Uh, yeah, so I think that's the $64 million question. I mean, I think climate change is the original wicked problem in the sense it is so difficult. We're talking about a systemic change in terms of the economy, in terms of the society in which we live in, the post-war in particular and post-industrial revolution, but especially the post-war society is runs on fossil fuels. And so we have to get off fossil fuels. And that won't happen overnight. And it's not an easy thing to do either. And I think it needs leaders who are willing and able to stand up and explain not just the costs, what's difficult about this, but also what the advantages are, what are the benefits to doing so in terms of health, in terms of economic opportunities, in terms of job creation. And I think we're slowly inching towards that, but it's too slow. So the the narrative is changing, the way we operate is changing, but it's all too slow. Um, And I think that's why it's taking such a slide, because we're not just talking about dealing with one bit of society or one bit of the economy. We're talking about everything. We're talking about agriculture. We're talking about nature. We're talking about energy. We're talking about the cars we drive, uh, the way we heat our homes. It's a a massive shift that we're talking about. It's almost, I think sometimes... Even knowing that, okay, this is that one, we need to do this. And two, this is an investment in the future and think of all the jobs that will be created and the lives that will be saved. Like, even as a person who knows that and believes that sitting and thinking about and just trying to like, wrap my one um, small human mind around the scope of it is is daunting. And so I can, on the one hand, appreciate it. On the other hand, I also didn't sign up to run a country in the middle of a climate crisis. (laughs) I think I guess what I'm saying is it's one thing for, you know, your average voter or your average news consumer to to want to check out of this. But I have a sense that politicians are using that to sort of slow their own pace because they're responding to those voters. But it's like, well, no, you need to be leading us on this. 
I think it's also what's, what's interesting from what you've just said there, Emily, as well, is that um, voters do want, people do want change. I mean, there's a lot of surveys have been done uh, in the last couple of weeks ahead of COP. And there's a new study came out from the UK today, I think. And it shows very clearly that people across different social classes, across different income ranges, want to act on the climate. Uh, they want to protect nature. They want to move to a greener economy. And so I, I don't think it's, it's there's a bit of an excuse from governments if they're saying, you know, we can't act on this because people don't want it, because I don't think that is the case anymore. And study after study tends to show that is the case. The big question, as we've already said, is who pays for it? There isn't a global lack of finance, as you've said yourself, you know, we have plenty of money when we want to to spend on on defence, or for example, as a very good example this week, whereby developed nations finally agreed after committing to it in Copenhagen in 2009 to to stump up $100 billion a year for climate finance in developed countries, though it won't actually come online till I think it's 2023. Um, But $100 billion is what the UK is spending on a high-speed rail link, HS2. So, you know, it's actually quite a small amount of money, even though it sounds like a large amount of money. And what we need is to change the financial flows um, at every level. So we're spending a lot less money on the bad things, on the dirty things, on fossil fuels, and we're spending a lot less on the good things. So on renewables, on clean energy, on wind and solar power, on new technologies that can help us clean our economies and make that transition. I just do want to flag, as an American, there's the sense that there just isn't time. One, there isn't time because it's an imminent crisis. But two, we don't have time because we don't know what's going to happen in the midterm elections or the next presidential election. And it's entirely possible that there is a person in the White House in 2024 who goes back to pulling out of Paris, right? And and we're back at like, well, this isn't really a problem. Um, In which case, we will have squandered not just time, but like our one actual opportunity for the US to do something on this. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is possible. But I think the narrative is changing. I mean, if you look at Vladimir Putin, for example, who was very much a, a climate skeptic, a climate denier a couple of years ago, I mean, his rhetoric has changed. And he sort of basically has said publicly now that he accepts that, you know, climate change is caused by humans. You know, Russia is warming, especially the, the northern parts of Russia are warming five times faster than the rest of the world. So I'm not convinced that, you know, we will end up with climate skeptics in the White House or anywhere else in the world. I think the world is perhaps moving in a different direction. Public opinion does have an influence on what's happening. And perhaps, you know, everybody needs to stand up and and, and shout a bit more. And I think that will be interesting to see after COP, if, if COP doesn't come up with an agreement that the public thinks is strong enough, you know, where will protest? We've always seen quite a lot of climate protests. We've seen the Fridays for Future led by Greta Thunberg. And whether those protests will ramp up and even become more violent in the future to actually demand uh, greater action. Philippa, does it matter that some of the leaders of the most highly emitting countries are staying away, in particular the countries that use the most coal? So Vladimir Putin isn't going. Xi Jinping is almost certainly not going. And Scott Morrison of Australia is only going after there were huge protests. What kind of signal does this send? I mean, I don't think the signal it sends is great, but I think at the same time, the reasons why both Putin and the leaders of China are not going is 
largely to do with COVID um, rather than than the climate, one would hope. Uh, neither of them has travelled particularly, if at all, during COVID. So it would have been rather a surprise had they left their countries. They're both represented by extremely experienced climate uh, negotiators who believe that climate change is happening um, and have negotiated in the past to, to move um, ambition forward. So while it doesn't send a great signal publicly or politically, I don't know how much it ultimately actually changes. I mean, you mentioned Australia. They came out this week finally with a commitment to to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. They also said that they would do that and not reduce uh, their reliance on fossil fuels. So there's clearly, you know, a contradiction here. But I think the the rhetoric is changing. We're seeing a, a change. I think that the 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 change will happen. I think now the real question is how fast will that change be, and will it be fast enough to keep global heating below levels which scientists deem are are dangerous? And are we going to see the discussions go into late night crisis mode? Is there going to be a crunch to reach a decision on the final day? Do you think? I would think so. That tends to be the way that cops go. And, you know, they're, they're notorious in, in running over. So I imagine that, um, I mean, everybody's always told, you know, you don't put your ticket to go back on the Friday or the Saturday, wait till the Sunday because the, the negotiations run, run over. So there's also a lot of detail that needs to be discussed. So there's the big issue around, you know, people signing up to 1.5 degrees. But there's also small, well, smaller issues, more niche issues, perhaps, which make the headlines less frequently in terms of setting up a a global carbon trading system, discussions around nature-based solutions and the role of forests, for example, in terms of of absorbing emissions and uh, as climate solutions. So it's not just those headline um, figures. There are also lots of discussions around other issues as well. And there has been various signals ahead of COP to suggest that actually a lot of the work that perhaps should have been done beforehand still needs to be done. And so I think, yeah, negotiators will be working late into the night to to try and move forward with, with all these different parts of the puzzle. And if the negotiations were to fail or break down, when is the next date in the calendar? When When is COP27? I think in terms of whether we're talking about success or failure, for me, it's a little bit reductive. And I think that what we're talking about here is, is moving forward forward. Every country is not going to have a nationally determined contribution to a sort of roadmap, which will put the world on a path to 1.5 degrees. That's not going to happen. But if that doesn't happen, that probably shouldn't be seen as a failure if if there is a movement in the right direction and a commitment to move forward even more fairly soon. As I said before as well, there are lots of other parts of this puzzle which can be agreed on. So I hesitate to say success or, or failure. I think, you know, we need to say to see where things actually change and where they don't. COP27 will happen next year because there is a COP every year and there has been a COP every year for, for 26 years. It's just that certain COPs are, there's more um, emphasis on, on what will happen in those COPs. Under the Paris Climate Agreement, there's a ratchet agreement. So every five years, countries are supposed to come forward and ratchet up their ambition. This should have happened last year. COP26 should have been last year, but was cancelled because of of COVID. And so I think what happens coming out of COP now is that within the next 12 months or so, there needs to be this ratchet agreement again, given that we will still not be on target for 1.5 degrees. We can't wait for another five or six years for countries to suddenly say, right, this is how we'll move forward even more. Well, we will be watching that next week and talking about that with you again next week once it's underway. Um, but this week, you mentioned COVID. Something else that's happening related to COVID and how it's changed our society um, is in southeastern Europe. Dragi Romani, 
Dear Romanians, I know times are tough, but don't lose hope. The history of this hardened nation has tested me to the fact that with solidarity, we overcame even the most challenging hardships. We can do it again. Alex, can you just give us a little bit of context about what we just heard? So that was the president of Romania, which has had the highest rate of COVID cases and deaths in Europe. The rates are absolutely staggering. They are they are at their peak. And part of the problem is that very few people are vaccinated. The official vaccination rate stands at about 30%. But there are very good reasons to doubt that. There are lots of reports of doctors issuing sham vaccination certificates so that people can travel or get a job or go to the cinema. There are also uh, a new term has entered the Romanian language, sync vaccinations, because that's that's where they put the vaccination instead of actually jabbing somebody. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, and so the figures are unreliable. The cases are going up. The situation is really bad. It's not just Romania. It's across southeastern Europe, the Balkans. Serbia has quite high rates as well. Um, and if you look at the vaccination rates, you know, in Bulgaria, it's something like 21%. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, it's only 15% of the population that have had both jabs. And there are lots and lots of reasons for this. But what it comes down to is a legacy of authoritarian government and the suspicion that has bred in the people of those countries. They don't trust that those governments, um, sometimes for very good reason, based on historical precedent. So if the government tells you to go get vaccinated, are you really going to believe them? Are you, you know, the Balkans are notorious for conspiracy theories. And so these are spreading. People get their information from all kinds of strange sources. They won't listen to the official sources. They'd rather um, listen to a neighbor or rumor or what they see on Facebook. I mean, this isn't unique to the region, but it's particularly bad there. And the results are showing up in the statistics. Yeah, I think, and I, I I, just want, you know, everyone listening to know, obviously, we do not mean to stereotype an entire region. And I personally, with my Russia and Eastern European studies hat on, um, I know it can be frustrating when people sort of essentialize Eastern Europeans, that is not what we are intending to do. But study after study does show that for exactly the reasons that Alex described, you know, there are systemic societal reasons for it, that conspiracy theories, and in particular, certain types of conspiracy theories do tend to take hold in these countries. And there, there are all sorts of like, you know, there are exceptions to this rule. So for example, conspiracy theories about say, NATO tend to not take hold in Romania, right, which is a very committed NATO country compared to other countries in Central Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe. Having said all of that, the reality is that there is clearly misinformation and disinformation about COVID vaccines in this part of the world. And the thing is, you know, if obviously one would hope that people don't believe conspiracy theories about anything, but it's particularly heartbreaking, given that it's something that could save people's lives. And there are some really strange ramifications from this. So I was speaking to an expert at the University of Graz in Austria. He was telling me that for some people, if you're vaccinated, that's seen as a sign of identifying with the government. You must be a government supporter because you believe what the government tells you on vaccinations. And so people who have reason not to, to trust the government, they may look for alternative solutions. In some cases, you get this 
really strange alignment between nationalism and a support for alternative medicine, because it's a, it's a support for something that is not from the authorities. So probably the strangest example of this, this is not to do with COVID particularly, but Radovan Karadzic, the wartime president of the Bosnian Serbs, when he was finally arrested after more than a decade on the run, he was living as an alternative healer in Belgrade. And there is there is that that strange identification. So there's 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 a lot at play here. I mean, I, I think in terms of of what's happening with COVID, I mean, to a certain extent, you can al- align it with what's happening with the the climate crisis. Is there is a certain amount of stories that are being told, of narratives that are being pushed out, which is not based on on facts. And so, I think it's clearly important that on these issues, there is yeah government leadership. I mean, within the EU, for example, on, on climate, we have the European Green Deal now. So all countries should really be aligned in their thinking on this. But again, there are still push in terms of this is something that should Western countries should be doing more of that you know other countries can't pay for it it's more difficult uh, in certain countries so yeah I think there are these narratives that probably need sorting out and, and clearing up I think one thing that's interesting in terms of climate and COVID is just the amount of attention and the amount of money which is being spent on COVID quite rightly but at the same time COVID is one hopes a temporary uh, problem whereas climate change is here to stay and if we don't do anything about it diseases problems like covid may well become more prevalent with a warming warming world so so we need to deal with these issues together and not separate them out and and really uh, not see covid almost as a, an excuse to sort of dampen down action on climate change because we're, we're only focused on one thing at once but covid does show that where there is a will for concerted action a great deal can be achieved in a really short space of time and you have social consent for it people supported some of the measures on covid even though they were of great personal inconvenience in some ways it's you know the climate crisis has moved so slowly and over such a long time and we've been hearing these these war- warnings for such a long time covid came out of nowhere and really forced action but um, it could be a model of of how to re- how to respond and how to how to gain consent, perhaps. Or am I going too far? I find that argument quite difficult because I think that um, at the beginning that was certainly true, and people were quite happy to to go into lockdown. People were quite happy to wear masks. But I think now there's a real pushback from the public who just wants their lives back and to live normally. And I think for a short period of time, people are happy perhaps to have certain constraints. Also, COVID felt very real to people because people they knew were ill or or were even dying. As you say, climate change can be a little bit more nebulous. So I think the amount of extreme weather we're having uh, all around the world, we've had the floods in Italy um, this week, terrible floods, really show that, you know, climate change is happening. It's here and it's having an impact on people's lives. So perhaps that will have an impact and, you know, make people more open to certain restrictions on their lives and um, but I think also with climate change you know we can change there will have to be changes to our lifestyles clearly but also we can make certain changes from a fossil fuel car to a, an electric vehicle from a, a gas heating system to a, a heat pump that runs on clean energy clearly these won't be solutions on their own because we'll never bring emissions down enough unless we have behavioral change but the two can go hand in hand 
and the advantage of climate action is that we bring about benefits. Uh, you know, if we have fewer cars in our cities, we have cleaner air, which causes less um, childhood asthma and the people are healthier, which ultimately has a, a positive knock on effects on our health bills because we're less of a burden on our health services. So with COVID, it was quite difficult to say there was anything positive probably coming out of it. Whereas with climate action, there are lots of benefits if we if we move in the right direction in the right way. It's funny to hear you say that at the beginning, people accepted lockdowns and masks since um, some of us are in countries where that <laughs> was never the case. But um, I do have one last question for Alex on COVID in Southeastern Europe, which is what what is the way out of this? Because I think sometimes when you speak about conspiracy theories in this region, there are people who say, oh, well, it's a problem of media, right? Or, oh, it's a problem with the ruling party or, oh, it's... And, you know, listening to Philippa just then, it suggests that the thing that could possibly help matters is to have people watch their lives be tangentially improved by good governance. Um, but that's a long time project and, and people need to get vaccinated now. I mean, so is, is there a way out? That's a very difficult question. Um, and that is what the region has been grappling with for, for, for decades, really. Um, and so because you have very few credible figures in civil society. You have you have very few alternative sources of trust. Um, the expert I was speaking to in Austria said, you know, in Austria, there's this charity Caritas. It's Catholic, but it's, it's widely supported across the country by people of no matter what religion. And it is seen as a credible source of information. And in a lot of countries in Southeastern Europe, it's very polarized. It's very politicized. There is this deep-seated mistrust of politicians, this sense, oh, they're only in it for themselves. And one of the problems that breeds is a sense of apathy or the futility of trying to change it. So in Bosnia, there's currently a scandal around the purchase of ventilators for COVID patients. And there were procurement scandals like this in many countries. But in this one, the manufacturer actually told the Bosnian government, these ventilators are not suitable for the purpose for which you are buying them. And there have been protests in Sarajevo, and there is anger. I'm not sure there's a huge sense that anything will change as a result. People just say, politicians, that's what they like. That's why they go into politics. Changing it is going to be almost as long-term a project as tackling climate change, I think. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. 
Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. With that, we are going to move on to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Thank you, Alex. Our question this week comes to us from Twitter. And the question was, what is going on in Iraq right now in light of what has happened in Afghanistan? So I wasn't exactly sure to what this was referring, Twitter user, but I will say that if it is about concern about the US-Iraq relationship, news broke actually Wednesday, a report came out that a US official um, very, very uh, intentionally said that, you know, Iraq is not Afghanistan, and we will not be leaving Iraq. Iraq is a trusted partner. Now, whether all of Iraq thinks that the United States, given the past 20 years of history as a trusted partner is another matter. But if the question is, is, are we going to see a repeat of what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq? The answer, at least in the immediate future, and I would say even probably medium term future is, is no, that's not U.S. policy or plan, according to U.S. officials. But Alex or Philip, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on uh, what's happening in Iraq. Just that they've had elections there recently, but turnout was at a record low. And the Iran-backed militias were defeated, but the cleric Muqtada al-Sada got the largest share of the votes. And this is sadly another region where people feel quite frustrated. So you're seeing more and more people leaving the country. And Iraqis are among the migrants who are turning up on the border between Belarus and Poland and getting caught in the power struggle there because they, many of them simply do not see a good future in their own country. Our colleague Ido Vak has written about that and will continue to write about that. So keep your eye open, your eyes open for more on newstatesman.com. Thank you to those of you who sent in your questions. If you have a question, send it in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or just tweet at us. Before we go, Alex, Philippa, what should listeners look out for in the coming week? Philippa, I have a guess as to what you're going to say, but... Yeah, I think uh, obviously people should be looking out for what is happening at COP26, but I think people need to look a little bit behind the headlines and uh, perhaps journalists need to be the one who are looking out and not be screaming uh, success, failure and coming out with very simple storylines which make the public think that either we've solved this crisis or actually, as you suggested, Emily, it's too late, there's no point in in getting up in the morning, we might as well just give up now. Journalists uh, need to be educated in terms of what they're explaining how they're explaining this to try and make the public debate much more informed and to empower people rather than people just feeling like they're they're totally powerless and, and cannot engage with this agenda because it's too big for them. And Alex? I think COP is just going to dominate the entire agenda for the next couple of weeks. It'll be very difficult um, for anything else to get much attention unless we get some kind of completely unpredictable event uh, and then all bets are off. All right. Well, Alex just jinxed us for the next week. So thank you. I am just going to flag that the G20 is coming up this weekend. That's the G20 world leaders are gathering together. And I think one interesting thing to watch is this dynamic between the G7 
the countries that we think of as like the traditional world leaders, how they get along in this larger group? Or is China and Russia the calling the shots now? How these different countries um, work together or don't, I think, will be the dynamic that I will be paying attention to. That's all we have time for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com. And join us on Monday for an in-depth interview with Parag Khanna, a specialist on geopolitics and globalization. And also keep an eye out on our website for our colleague Megan Gibson's interview with Jagmeet Singh, a Canadian opposition leader on, among other things, the fight against the climate crisis. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world review. It's free. Also free, our new environment newsletter launching this Sunday. Please sign up. We will drop a link in the show notes to this episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave us a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.